Yeah. And I think for us, it's, I would say the second follow-up persistence to like, if you really want something, you better, especially if you're going to, if you're driving to be your own boss or run your own company or, or, uh, you know, solopreneur practitioner, you better really know that that's what you want to do. And you better be willing to fight through all of this crap because that you will end up making sacrifices that you never thought you would make. And if you're willing to do that and get through the dips of when things get really, really hard, it's usually right after that real hard piece of tension that something great happens and you make a lot of progress. This is The Artist Report, where we have conversations with top-level artists, designers, freelancers, photographers, and entrepreneurs in order to hear their stories of how they got to where they are, struggles they've had along the way, and what they do to stay inspired. And hopefully you can take something away that inspires you or challenges you to be better in your craft and business. I'm Braden Flynn, your host, and this episode is a conversation with the founders of Soundstripe Music. If you've heard or listened to the past couple podcasts, I've mentioned soundstripe.com as a place where we get the music for all the platforms on The Artist Report, but that's not why I have these guys on here. Precursor, this is not an ad for them. It's not paid content or anything like that. But I was introduced to Micah of Soundstripe by a musician buddy of mine whose brother knew him. And we jumped on a call to talk through my music needs for what I was looking for. And in talking with Micah, I heard the story behind Soundstripe, how they've been building their business. And I really loved their mindset and what they were doing. And from that conversation, I asked if I could interview him and his co-founder, Travis, to hear their story. So we talk about everything from where the idea of Soundstripe started, the problems they've had to solve, the lessons they've learned, thoughts on the current state of the music industry, which is something I'm always interested about, and then other entrepreneurial insights. Over on theartistreport.com, you can check out other interviews in video format or go to theartistreport.com slash YouTube to find all of our videos and subscribe to our channel there because there's way more content than what gets posted here um, over there. And last thing before getting you into the interview, we do want to thank Soundstripe for the music we use across all the platforms on The Artist Report. Since this interview is with the Soundstripe founders, they set up a promo code, The Artist Report, all lowercase, all one word. When you sign up for a free account, you can enter that promo code and you get one free song download, no strings attached, which you can use pretty much anywhere you want. They have an... Uh, they have an incredible selection of music, which you can have on access to unlimited downloads from their entire library for 10 bucks a month, which is crazy if you know how much decent songs are to license. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Micah and Travis of Soundstripe.com. Really excited to have you guys on the show. And I think what you have to share is going to be amazing for the audience. But um, could you guys just give a little brief intro? Start, like We don't have to do the full life story, but start sure. out just... Um, what are both of your backgrounds? Maybe we can take turns talking about that and then also get into how you met and then where Soundstripe came about. Sure. Yeah. Well, first, man, thanks for having us on. It's yeah. yeah. These are always really fun. I, I'm, I'm very thankful for the invention of podcasts. It's Me very too. like obscure independent it. radio or something. You really get to go behind the curtain with a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, awesome. so I am Micah and uh, geez, my backstory in a quick nutshell is I got started playing in bands when I was really young, uh, started touring nationally when I had turned 16, I got my license and got on a tour bus and, um, did that for about 10 years and ended up moving to Nashville in the process and meeting this guy to my right, who is Travis and I'll give it to you, buddy. So basically, uh, I grew up a Texas fiddle player <laughs> playing bluegrass, playing old jazz, old country, 
and uh, started playing when I was seven. It grew into really uh, getting into studying music, went to college, dropped out of college, moved to Nashville, uh, <laughs> and then met Micah. And and really, that was, that, that's been six years ago, and we've never looked back. We, we really, we, in 2010, we started a studio, uh, starting doing production records for different artists. And, uh, that kind of turned into film scoring naturally because I was a violinist and, uh, an orchestrator and, uh, he was a really good engineer. And then that kind of turned into what we're doing now. So you guys met and then you started scoring for either other bands or were you producing for other bands? And it sounds like you started basically writing for movies and TV. Tell me how it went from there into the idea for Soundstripe and then how you actually started that. Sure. So um, it was 2009, I believe. And both both Travis and I were uh, road dogs, Uh, just either crew, driver, band guy, whatever it was, we spent our lives out on the road. And both of us simultaneously uh, back at home, both had little bedroom studios. Uh, And I lean a little bit harder on the audio engineering side. And Travis can play anything that has keys or strings. And there was one evening, we were friends. We just met through mutual friends when Travis moved to town. And one evening he came over and got on a MIDI keyboard and played this little song that he wrote. I was like, dude, that's freaking amazing. And I took the MIDI out on the road with me that weekend and just kind of synthetically built a track out. When I came back to town, showed it to him the next day, he just brought all of his gear into my bedroom because it was bigger. And that's kind of the beginning. Like we just, yeah, I just gave him my computer and everything. I was like, I don't even know how to work any of this. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) which was a sweet deal for me because my gear doubled. Uh, and, and for me, like I, as much as I was a guitar player in touring bands f- for about a decade, I am not super inclined musically. I'm a kind of by like, let me learn my parts and then I'll play them back good. But I, yeah, I don't know music theory and Travis is just, we just made a really good team. So from there, we just started like bands that were opening for our tours. We would bring them back to Nashville and start cutting, you know, 50 bucks a track. Like, dude, yeah, get us 50 bucks a track. And we'll just like, we'll record it. It's going to be sweet. We did um, a lot of free work, a lot of free work for, uh, fun. for a couple of years. And, um, that kind of evolved pretty quickly. We saw the grind of what it would mean to be in Nashville, Tennessee, which is music city. I think they even took the USA apart and they just said music city of the world or something. (laughs) There's a producer Mm -hmm. in a studio on every other back of every other house on every street ever. And so just the chase for artist budgets got so annoying, which is artist budgets are typically really huge these days. Yeah. Oh yeah. They were. Yeah. Yeah. When we landed a record, man, it was millions, millions. Yeah. We would just make just bank millions of cents rolling around. Yeah. (laughs) Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pennies. Um, So that got exhausting. And um, Travis and I both kind of had a knack and a love for just jingles, like advertise little 30 second, 60 second pieces. And Travis knew some people in Texas. And so we started kind of trying to get involved in that world and ended up, you know, you, you, it was fun for a little bit, but it was very stressful. It was um, as a practitioner, you basically, your goal is to get on email lists for music supervisors 
and they send you an email at night and they expect a brand new track in the morning. And you know, the opportunity, if you land, it's like $70,000 cause it's for whoever, but it's very rare that you actually land that. So we all, we ended up with a bunch of little tunes on our hard drive in our studio that kind of weren't being used. And that was at the point where we felt like, you know, I wonder if we could put these up online and uh, maybe, maybe some filmmakers would find use for these. And then we really started noticing that we weren't the only ones in Nashville that had this dilemma. We, (laughs) I mean, there are so many talented people in Nashville that have tons of songs sitting on hard drives going nowhere. They're really creative people, but they don't, have an act for business to really put it out into the world. And so we were like, what if we built the platform ourselves mm-hmm. um, and and really get to know what music licensing is as a whole? And that really just started that. I mean, and <laughs> it, it one thing led to another and two years of grinding, 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 of learning, of failing, <laughs> of of reiterating, mm-hmm. here we are today. <laughs> yeah, and I think a pivotal moment in that for us was, I don't even remember when this was, and it doesn't really matter, but at some point along the way, Travis and I made this weird little agreement that we would never solely rely on our creative gifts yeah. to keep the lights on. And I know that might sound a little depressing. Yeah, what is what does that mean? Explain that a little bit. Like, so for me as a band guy, like it's literally I'm a band guy and he's a fiddle player, right? You don't go from being band guy fiddle player to co-CEOs of a really what we are is a copyright management company. I mean, right. we don't market that, but that's what we are. You don't go like you don't just turn that switch, right? But yeah. we knew it was really important for us. It was like, you know, if we try to rely on just our like, man, these guys can make great records. Well, we might be, we might grow and we might do really well at that. And we could be the, the hottest new producers in town for like, (laughs) Oh man, those guys, those are the guys, those are the guys. And you're going to get all these budgets and it's going to be amazing for a really short amount of time. And then some new kids going to come into town and smoke you somehow or the genres are going to change, the market's going to change, and all of a sudden you're the old irrelevant guy that can't get a budget for the life of him. And I was like, I don't want to spend 20 years chasing something that could just end just like that. And so that was kind of an agreement we made. In fact, we went so hard on <laughs> hard in this world of let's not rely on our solely on our creative talent to pay the bills that we started a real estate wholesaling company. Just to try to keep the the lights on, which was a horrible mistake. Oh, it was a horrible idea. Horrible. I mean, it was a good idea in theory, but... (laughs) In theory, it was a great idea. We just weren't passionate at all about it. Yeah. So that's been (laughs) a really big piece for us. So don't do things just for money. Yeah, don't do things just for money. (laughs) That's that's what all that was for. Yeah, no, I like that. So, So taking it from there, like, let's go talk about how you ended up having the idea. It's like, wow, we've got hard drives full of songs. Um, we don't want to be producers and we've got a lot of friends that are here 
basically with a lot of hard drives, a lot of songs, or a lot of songs in their heads they haven't put out, a lot of talent with people not making money. How did you go from that realization to then coming to this idea of starting Soundstripe? And yeah. Really, man, it it took a couple of months to even form what was in our head. Um, I like I I had heard of stock music companies. I mean, they'd been around forever. This is not a new idea, you know. Um, but I don't know. It it just kind of dawned on us that we can put these things on the internet, and they might be able to sell. The, 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 the thing that we were really interested in was that the music industry as a whole is kind of going down, you know? Yeah. And, and I really believe that we're in a, um, micro entrepreneur economy mm-hmm. where, you know, the Ford commercials are not happening as much. The, the big $70,000 sinks, the, you know, million dollar movies, you know, of course there's always going to be a, a top, top shelf tier of people that do that. Um, but then, but look at Uber, Lyft, all these companies that Airbnb, like mm-hmm. you can get a job doing like working for yourself. Like there's so many people doing that. And we just saw, you know, like there, there are a lot of people that need music that may, maybe they can't afford you know, a thousand dollars a song. <laughs> yeah. Know? And I, to, to add to that too, I think when, what really kind of sold us on it was we we're confident in our ability to compose, produce, record, mix, all that stuff. Right. And so the tracks that we had, they weren't just throwaways. They were good. And when we went and visited some of the sites that uh, filmmakers had access to, for a price that you could say, okay, I can afford to do this. Like, cause filmmakers are in the same boat, right? Like you guys are trying to run companies as well. Just like we are as mm-hmm. it's a creative vocation, right? So you're trying to make money out of art in some way, shape or form. And we saw that as a resource in the stock music industry is that if you're a filmmaker and you do a video and your budget is, you know, relatively small, say 500 bucks or a thousand dollars or something, you can't afford three, four, five hundred dollars for a piece of stock music. But if you go to the other alternative, uh, the, you know, a different company or whatever, where it's maybe five dollars and it's royalty free and you can use it on whatever you want. Ultimately, all those songs are crap and you totally. don't you don't want it on your work. Right. And so we just felt like really the goal for us as a company has been to figure out a way to provide uh, really, really good top shelf quality music for filmmakers to use with really simple licensing terms and for a price that pretty much anybody can afford. Yeah. So that was kind of, that's what sold it for us is when we kind of saw the hole in the market It's like, dude, we could, we could fill that. I think, I think we could fill that hole. So. Yeah. I mean, I would on, on this, just as a comparison, thinking through being a photographer um, and I'm in LA, which happens to be, you know, there's, a, a couple things get filmed here and a couple things get uh, yeah. shot here. That's and like view. Nashville, yeah. Nashville is where all the music's happening. This is where all that happens. And every property basically wants a piece of that. And the mm. differentiation happens is sort of like with you guys, you've got the big music studios or uh, sorry, the, the big uh, movie studios that are needing scores for films, or you've got commercials that have budgets for that stuff. And so 
it's really hard in a licensing sort of way to like differentiate, oh, like this is going towards a commercial, so it's going to charge this much versus mm-hmm. like this is an indie filmmaker who just needs good music for their That's deal. Right. Right. Um, be, like for in, in what ends up happening is for me, if I need a permit to shoot somewhere, it's mm-hmm. a couple grand when right. it's like, listen, like I'm not making any money off of this yeah. or that's more than what I'd be paid for this little tiny shoot that I'm doing. So what ends up happening is you sneak in and you steal the space. That's friggin' right. Which probably happens with music. I mean, which that's I know happens right. with music because I've stolen it too. There it is. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. Yeah. <laughs> no. And that's right, man. Cause if you, if you go in and you say, man, I really need to use this song and it's some obscure song that no one's ever heard by some band that's, you know, uh, from Iceland or something uh and called cigarettes yeah. well not <laughs> yeah, so i was trying to think of a more obscure country <laughs> and iceland came out like, well cigarettes yeah um it's just that's ridiculous and that's how we felt man is like this is abs- like okay so this is a little bit uh, i guess maybe of a rabbit rabbit hole here but we were having this conversation today the market is the market is the market and it will pay whatever it will pay you can't just say hey this house it's worth $20 million. I mean, you can say that, but what it's really worth is what somebody will come up and say, I will give you X amount of dollars for this house. That's what it's worth. That's what it's worth. Like in that, I mean, talk to a real estate agent. That's how they go off of what houses are worth is comparable properties within a certain radius or whatever. So from a market perspective, we felt it was just absurd if you are making a home video for a slideshow for your grandma's funeral, this got dark. Um, let's well, say let's say a wedding a wedding video slideshow a wedding video slideshow or even sure. just a wedding video wedding video itself right like I don't imagine those typically get over I mean you tell me you're you're the videographer how how many like typical views does that get like on Vimeo or YouTube I mean I would say probably like a good videographer is getting a couple thousand views maybe thousand views, like, right. I maybe a couple hundred, you yeah, know, and because, if they're, if they have a lot of friends on Facebook, maybe they're getting a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, then that's the thing is like, who's the audience there? Well, it's the family and it's the friends. And honestly, it's the bride. She's the one who's right. going to go back and watch it a thousand times. And why should you have to pay whatever a thousand dollars for those handful of people to keep watching that video? That's ridiculous. At the same time, that piece of music, that same, very same piece of music, if, Coke wants to use it on their next worldwide like ad series. Well, yeah, you're going to have to pay for that chief. You can't, you can't, you have a budget, you have a budget for this um, and you should pay for this, but that shouldn't, to me, it shouldn't shank the, the indie filmmaker cinematographer that's trying to scrap his way to a living via whatever he's got to do. Like that's, I mean, we're music makers in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Like the the whole, I would say, just even in the last couple of years of people making just little vlogs, and you know the mm-hmm. I don't even know what you call it nowadays when it's like everyone's making the videos about themselves. Is that vlogging too? I don't know. Um, you know where, but it's the um, it's just this video driven space, and as yeah. you guys would probably agree, you know, music plays such a significant role in how good a film is. You know, mm-hmm. and so having either to pay steal or you know you're either using like crappy music for cheap or mm-hmm. you're stealing something that's good because there's nothing that i mean for me this someone i would say has taste there's mm-hmm. not much that i can find that i can purchase for a reasonable price mm-hmm. that works for anything that i'm doing to make mm-hmm. it feel like it's me right and that's the deal is like ultimately would it be best if you could have 
uh, composer score all the stuff that you do? Probably. Yeah. But that's if, if you hire us for that, it's going to cost you a lot because it's, that takes forever and it's a ton of work and there's a lot of collaboration. Mm-hmm. But if you can find that happy in between, you know, I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to be. We're trying to give that, which, what you just described very beautifully, somebody with good taste that has high expectations. We should be able to serve that good quality of music to you. And you shouldn't have to pay an arm and a leg for it unless it's, you know, going on friggin' national television for eight gazillion million people to see. Mm-hmm. I think it has all, all to do with audience size, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I love that because that I feel like it is such a felt I as someone who has had this felt need of wanting good totally. me, like even for this podcast, so to say, you know, it's like totally. trying to find an intro. A lot of the intros that I've heard aren't great, you know, and, and being able to like find us. But but I, I'm not making money on this thing right, right? now, you know, no and budget. so it's like, yeah. how much money do I spend for a 20 second clip of music on something that I'm just really doing as a passion project at this point mm-hmm. is, is difficult, you know? So, mm-hmm. so being able to have something like this is a really, really, I think filling a cool need and gap. So good for you guys. Well, thanks man. I, are we're, we are really passionate about, um, just being useful. Like that's how we feel we're going to win. It's not, it's, it might sound altruistic, but it's not like we really think it's in our best interest to be useful to guys like you. If we're not useful, then you're, we're just wasting your time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Who likes their time to be wasted? No. Um, so, I mean, a lot of the audience that I have listening to this, you know, on the artist report is ultimately there could be, you know, like videographers, photographers, but then designers, illustrators, but this whole idea of being an entrepreneur and starting something out of a talent that you have and actually building a business around that, which is what you guys have done, which I think is incredible um, for for just people that have are in maybe that same spot or have those ideas. What I, I want to sort of get into that journey of, of where you, you know, the starting process to where you are now and maybe here, what can you even like think through? Like, what are some of the, the the big obstacles that you guys have faced in starting this and how have you overcome them? How is it? And then also I want to talk about like working as a team versus doing it by yourself mm-hmm. and all that. But maybe let's start with what are some of the, like the, the lessons you've learned or things that have been difficult? Oh my gosh. I mean, <laughs> where do you start? I mean, because uh, really it, if you want to be an entrepreneur, y- you have to learn that failing is part of it. And, uh, we have a, a motto at our company to fail quickly and cheaply, uh, meaning don't get in a bunch of debt uh, <laughs> if you're starting a business and fail a lot. So when you're failing a lot, you're moving forward. You have momentum. And oh my gosh, we, we've done so much of that. We've had bad hires. We've had uh, bad fires. We've had mm-hmm. bad products. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've had... Um, just terrible decisions. And, but the thing that I think separates us from a lot of people is that we just have a crap ton of persistence. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it is in our blood DNA that we're just, we're committed. We're here, Mm -hmm. you know, it's either that or we starve. And so to, to, to me, it's like we face these failures and decide, when we fail, okay, how are we going to fix this problem? 
uh, how do we move forward? We get past it and then we literally forget it. Mm -hmm. Like we don't let the failures become our DNA. Like Mm -hmm. we, we kind of move on and we move on pretty quickly. And I think that's been a, a really big part of us being successful. I was just going to say on the persistence piece, um, the story about that barbecue place in Austin. I don't know it. Oh, uh, Franklin barbecue that he gives, that he gives away his recipe. Oh, uh, because he's the guy that'll persist. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the, uh, there's uh, Franklin's barbecue in Austin, Texas. It is the uh, said to be the best barbecue place in the whole world because I am from Texas and Texas has the best barbecue. <laughs> you have authority to say this. Uh, I Obviously, do have yeah. all the authority to say this. Um, but. Uh, he gives uh, every barbecue place in the country is very secretive about their recipe, their rub, their sauce. They don't tell anybody about anything, and that's that's the long-standing tradition. Well, this guy comes up, has the best barbecue ever, wins all these awards, and gives away all his recipes. And people are like, "Why do you do this?" And and he was like, "Well, the recipe is actually pretty simple, but I just know." nobody's going to do all this. And, uh, <laughs> like, cause he shows up at like 2 AM or something yeah. every morning to start smoking the whatever. And he knows no one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. He and, said he goes above and beyond every day to, you know, make sure that the meat's tender and the sauce is perfect. And that's right. And, and he's like, here's the secrets to that. You guys will probably not do this, <laughs> pull this off, but yeah. here it is. And then his Franklin's is still the best barbecue in the world. Yeah. And I think for us, it's, I would say the second follow-up persistence to like, if you really want something, you better, especially if you're going to, if you're driving to be your own boss or run your own company or, or, uh, you know, solopreneur practitioner, you better really know that that's what you want to do and you better be willing to fight through all of this crap because that you will end up making sacrifices that you never thought you would make. And if you're willing to do that and get through the dips of when things get really, really hard, it's usually right after that real hard piece of tension that something great happens and you make a lot of progress So along with persistence, to me, the follow-up to persistence is self-awareness. And Mm -hmm. we have talked about this a lot this year. Um, You can persist and be stupid and get nowhere. Yeah. So, you know, like a really easy example of this is I could love, I, I, I could love, I don't, I'm not a sports guy, but I could love basketball, right? With all my heart and be like, I'm going to be a basketball player. It doesn't matter. I could practice two, like 20,000 hours and I'm never going to be in the NBA ever. I'm six feet tall. I'm white. I can't jump. I'm a little pudgy. Like there's just, it's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how hard I try. So if you are persistent, but you're not self-aware of your gifts, of your skills, of what you naturally have talent in, you can go in a lot of circles really, really fast. And it's a shame because man, if you were to just say, you know what, like I am self-aware enough to know that I am, I am not, I don't have this character trait. Well, if you don't have this character trait, stop trying to round yourself out, find someone else that can do that really well. And you focus on what you're really great at. And I think that's where our partnership between Travis and I has come into play really well. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that most 
uh, voices in the business world would speak very highly against partnerships. And I actually kind of agree with them. They're really, really hard to maintain. We, Travis and I are co-leaders of this big mess. And it means that we have to be on the same page about a lot of stuff. And so communication is really hard. But the benefit that we get out of this by communicating well is uh, his skills, gifts are my weaknesses and vice versa. And that has worked really well for us. Yeah. So this the idea of really being able to stay in your lane. Um, That's right. Did, did you guys really, I mean, it sounds like you have some pretty obvious differences in skill sets, but what was it like for you sort of either discovering the discovery process of that or actually setting it up in the sense like, Hey, this, this is going to be your lane and this is going to be my lane so that we can focus on what we're doing and not really go into somebody else's lane. Totally. We've done both things actually. Can I tell the argument in the garage story? Yeah, sure. Okay. We, we, Cause we've struggled with this in the beginning. Yeah. Hard. So the first couple of years we worked together. Um, so we moved out of the bedroom and we took, uh, the half of the downstairs of the house that we were living in and, um, turned that into a studio and it was going okay. Um, but I am so once, <laughs> so I'm kind of as the audio engineer, right? Like I'm the guy that's just clicking a thousand buttons in pro tools. Like we just recorded this record. Travis played a couple instruments on it and a lot of the instruments on it. And I'm sitting there for like days on end, just seriously, the keyboard's on fire. And behind me, he's laying down on the studio couch on his phone. And I, my blood's just boiling. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I, will you do something? And so we, I think we ran out into the gosh, I, was, I don't remember even how the conversation started, but basically we got into an argument. We got into a hard argument and I was like, you're not doing anything. And I'm over here busting my balls. Like, will you help with this thing? And I'll never forget it. Like I'm a pretty bully aggressive person. And Travis is, is, um, much more kind hearted and patient. Uh, but you, <laughs> you were like, Hey, how do you think we even had this record to do? I've been talking to that band for six months <laughs> or, or, or something along those lines. Yeah. And like, it was just like this, like, oh man, I'm such a jerk. Like we just have different roles. And he was, I was, he wasn't playing Tetris. He was getting the next band to give us a budget to do the next record. You right. know what I mean? Different yeah. skills. And he's, uh, uh, I'm very big picture. He's very analytical. He's the, uh, he's the operations manager in this whole company. Um, and, and, it, it takes two. It really does. And we, we had to really sit down and, and it wasn't one meeting. It's been, mm-hmm. it's been, honestly, it's been a couple years of, of saying, oh, you're like that. You know, mm. we took several like tests, like, uh, Myers-Briggs and the disc test, uh, to figure out exactly how we handle confrontation. Mm-hmm. Um, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Mm-hmm. We really, I mean, we mapped it out yeah. and to figure out, oh, you know, you're best suited here. And we still work on that from the day to day. Uh, should, uh, should you handle that or should I mm-hmm. like, you know, and that it, it's always molding and bending and the lanes naturally appeared in the beginning, but they naturally appeared because we would get in a fight. Right. Um, after, yeah. after we got tired of fighting, we really did sit down and be like, okay, 
what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What, what kind of, what department should I be in? What department should you be in? So like Travis handles all of our marketing because it's all long game, patient, consistent, just do the same things over and over, adapt to the market. I don't have the patience for that crap. Like just get out of the way. I want to build something. <laughs> and so I'm our product lead. Like I, it just kind of, you know, you just do the math and stick with your strengths. I, yeah, will, I, I will say too that, sorry to cut you off, but no, um, uh, we give each other a lot of benefit of the doubt. When, when oh, we yeah. had, um, there, there was somebody that, that was like an older partnership. They set us down and told us, uh, always give each other the benefit of the doubt. And that has been so huge mm-hmm. for us. Um, you know, don't assume that I'm not doing anything or don't assume that I haven't thought about thought that. about this. You know, uh, it's, I think that is a huge Huge lesson. And I think that's even, that goes beyond just like partners. Like I realize partnerships are, most people go into business by themselves. But even when you have, you know, you hire your first staffer or you hire your first assistant or you whatever, always start with the benefit of the doubt. Always. Because you don't know. Like don't go in assuming they just, oh, this is typical you. You always forget this stuff. And if you blow up like that, it sucks when it turns around on you. Cause you're like, Oh man, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, you can avoid all that pain and suffering. If you give the people around you the benefit of the doubt. Oh man. The, the life lessons that I've had to learn when just realizing that people don't think exactly how I think, you know, it's like, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been in positions where I have had either people that I've hired or, I mean, I ran a youth group at a church for a long time, you know, and I had volunteers and the, those differences in personality where when I was a volunteer, no one ever had to tell me when to show up, when to, you know, like mm-hmm. do this, do that. I was always there early. I was driving hours to be, you know, it's like, and then when I had volunteers, it baffled me that like people wouldn't do that. Right. And and then I would get frustrated. But then it's this idea it's like, oh, people actually need and want to be told what to do. You know, those just those like little differences or right. setting that expectation of exactly what you said mm-hmm. of I, I, I'm having to learn this in my marriage. You know, those yeah. those sort of things of giving people the benefit of the doubt and don't assume you know what they're thinking because what they actually are thinking is probably not what you think they're thinking, you know, That's or, right. or just the different motivations because everyone is wired differently, you know. Yeah. Um, Mike, it sounds like you and I are wired very similarly, you mm-hmm. know, but and I just brought someone on for the artist report that is um, wired more like you, you know, yeah. so mm-hmm. the that ability to um, really recognize your strengths, but then also within hiring, I think the the biggest thing that I've had to learn is is really being clear with expectations of like this is what your role is. Totally. Because I think as people who are in sort of a startup type situation where you're starting a business, you are wearing a ton of hats and you mm-hmm. are doing a lot and you're used to doing a lot and you feel like other people have that same sort of capacity mm-hmm. or desire to do the amount of work that you're doing at the sacrifice mm-hmm. that you're doing. And and then it can if you if you have that expectation and you don't actually s- set like this by doing this, you're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. It it's I've I've had to learn because I'm so hard on myself and nothing is ever good enough that then I was doing like my employees were feeling that I didn't think what they were doing was ever good enough. That's right. You're like projecting your own expectations and standards on people. Like, okay, number one, did they have equity in your company? No, they freaking don't. Are you paying them what they're worth? Probably not. If you're new, 
Like, so how on the, like, and I'm the same, I'm so guilty of the same thing. And like, I've had to apologize a lot to a lot of the people that have worked with us to be like, man, I'm really <laughs> like, it's just, it's like, that's ridiculous to have that kind of expectation, you know, but yeah. you're the way you are is the frame of reference that you give to the rest of the world. That's why there's disagreances amongst lots of that's why there's Democrats and Republicans. Like, yeah. why aren't you just more like me? That's really what we're all asking. Like when we're in traffic, when we're stuck, we were stuck in traffic today. And uh, uh, Travis, Travis gets a little judgy on the way people drive. Yeah, I do. I'm not gonna lie. And every time, every time he'll make a comment, I'll go. What's, so what you're really saying is, why don't you all just be a little more like me? <laughs> exactly. I'll and thank it. God they're all not. <laughs> and Travis always responds like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and thank God they're not. I mean, honestly, there there can only be one me in this company. Uh, but, you know, we'd all have some great ideas, but nothing would ever get done. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, we need, we need someone to implement that stuff. That's hilarious. But the same, I mean, if... Oh, yeah, same goes for me. If I didn't... I would run in circles, I, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. If I didn't if I didn't have somebody looking five years out, two years out, one year out. So this this is something that I have been learning for myself and I wanna I'm telling the story ultimately to hear like is this something that you guys have figured out and how is um I've been getting to this realization that I mean, we talked about this a little bit before the show, but mm-hmm. being someone who expects perfection of myself and what I'm doing and what I'm building, um, I it's this idea of actually defining success so that you can feel like you're hitting it. It's almost like the setting the expectations for your employees, but also the setting the expectations for yourself because when you have these grandiose ideas for mm-hmm. building a company and it's not quite there yet because you're in the building phases and you have to actually be patient with yourself and the process, um, do you have you guys set up anything so that you can actually measure that to be like, oh, we're accomplishing what we need to accomplish and we're doing okay instead of constantly being like, we haven't done enough yet. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I, there's, I've actually kind of got two thoughts on this. Um, one is if you're starting your own uh, business or you're trying to go into business for yourself, it is really, really crucial that you have, um, we call it measurable traction. So you can look back at your day or look back at your week and say, yeah, like I did this, I did this and I did this. And that's great because it's on, it's the path to like set some goals for yourself. You know, um, the issue with that in a startup and you should do that. The, the how trouble- do you, how do you do that? You know, let's get into that before you, or oh, sure. we can get into that after. Yeah, no, no. We, I mean, that's, that's kind of your own style. There's, there's books upon books upon books about goal setting and time management. Um, we use the four quadrant time management situation. What are urgent, not Covey's. urgent. We do. Yeah. 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 Quarterly. Uh, we'll do quarterly founder um, meetings, like offsite meetings. Uh, to set goals for that quarter. We'll do annual, we do annual staff meetings to set those kind of goals. So there's a million ways to do, do the goal setting part, the tough part in the beginning. And still for us, we're three years, two and a half years in, and we're, we're still struggling with this is if you're, you live in uncertainty, so you don't know how to set goals. Um, so you're going to set the goals way too high or way too low. And every once in a while you do it right. And so that's the part that actually 
sent me quite frankly on a very personal level into a really deep depression. Hmm. Um, we had set a very, very unrealistic goal on when we were going to be profitable and we did not hit it even by, we didn't hit it at all. All right. And it was in my brain that that's what we were doing. And when we didn't do it, I mean, I just lost all hope. And I know it sounds funny, but we were just trying to be do the right thing and set goals, right? But we're not going to hit this goal. Oh, we're screwed. So being uh, flexible with the goals that you set actually is somewhat important. Right. Mm-hmm. A good example of this is we had set user goals for when we released Soundstripe uh, back in February. And right now our goal at the beginning of the year, we set this goal to have 20 paid users. And as of today, we have 360 something, which is a great that we screwed up on that goal because we're doing totally. way better than we thought we would, would do. But again, we need to readjust our goals for the end of the year to be more realistic. So it's important that they're there, but know that you're not going to set them right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know totally. I mean? mm-hmm. and does, that, does that answer your question or was that just out of control? No, no, that was, that was, that was right on. Um, cause yeah, it is. Everyone does it differently. And I think within different, like bigger companies have to set more like established corporate goals that are like the quarterly monthly. Um, I think the thing that I've been having to learn for myself is really, really that how to, how to be content on the process and journey to get there mm. and having, having the real, uh, because my mindset, uh, always goes towards needing to be way down there at this level of huge success now. And I just started, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, my, if you, if you, anyone listeners go back and listen to my first, the first two podcasts that I released on here, um, I was going with this narrative mode uh, where I was interviewing multiple people. It was talking on a topic. I was cutting together multiple to- you know, deals. And it was, it took me <laughs> 30 plus hours per episode, you know, oh and gosh. on top of it, it's, I had never edited audio before, you know, I had oh, never man. done a podcast before I'd listened to a lot, but my expectation for myself was I should be able to kill it, you know, and, and <laughs> on top of that, then you, you listen to any of the shows that are really, really well produced. Yeah. And at the end of the show, they talk about the 10 people that have been That's working right. on that production. And I was like, why the hell is it taking me so long to do this? And why is it so difficult? And it's like, oh, that's because I'm filming it, recording it, writing it, directing it, you know, shooting it, you know, like doing everything yeah, by man. myself as I'm learning how to do it, you know, Jeez, but, yeah. but that expectation of like feeling that I suck when it's like, you idiot, like, of course you suck. You guys relate I, to that at all? I relate to that 115%. <laughs> yeah. I don't relate to it actually because I love the journey. I Rad. love, I love, like I have so much fun getting up every day. Uh, you know, I've told Micah, I would start a, a popsicle stand with him. You know, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter to me. And, um, and I guess I'm just, I come from a much slower pace. Uh, so I just enjoy, I enjoy running it. And uh, I just want progress. Yeah, we're right. progress. But at the same time, I'm going between two mindsets, basically the really patient long game, but at the same time, the perfectionist in my head. Yeah. Um, and so it's just a balance of that because, you know. Yeah, I think to, um, what, you're, what it seems like you're talking about is self-grace. 
Yeah, totally. And, and that to me is something that, uh, I, I don't have a lot of, and you know, that's something I've always admired in, in Travis is it's not, it's not, uh, that's something you do really well is you have a really good sense of self-awareness where you can say, dude, we just started doing this like chill. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually, that's actually kind of a talent to be able to pause long enough to give yourself a little damn credit. Like you just started chill. And yeah, I, no, it's I, huge. I think that's kind of, I think that's really what it is, man. It's just like your expectations of yourself. You can literally drive yourself insane. And I, I am, that's a living story for me. That's what happened to me. And, it, and I, quite frankly, a couple months after that breakdown, I like was trying, pretty much trying to talk you out of doing this. Yeah. I was like, dude, this is impossible. Like, there's no way this is impossible. Yeah. And I had all these lists of reasons why and all this yada, yada, yada. But it's just because up in my brain, I, uh, there was no way I could do it because I tried and I didn't do it and I didn't do it right. And so we got to pick something else to do, you know? And And a testament to the importance and value of having a partner. Oh, and, yeah. or you know if yeah. it's not a partner it's you know people talk about their mastermind groups or it's totally. like just having like a mentor or someone that you can go to to like slap mm-hmm. you on the face and be like you're okay like that's, that's right <laughs> was, in that's the right. uh goodwill hunting is like you're okay <laughs> yeah. you're yeah. okay you know <laughs> like i know yeah. i know yeah and it's um, like when you, no, can't, you don't if, you're okay if you're not thinking clearly <laughs> then you're not thinking clearly so you're not gonna sit there and be able to talk yourself off this ledge because you're already off the ledge you know what i mean like yeah really i mean being an entrepreneur all boils down to managing fear <laughs> mm. just over and over, you know, you're just talking yourself off the cliff or, you know, I've, you're, you're, you're jumping into something you've never done before. And, uh, sometimes nobody's ever done before. Mm. And so it's, it's a very scary thing. And Mm -hmm. most people love security Mm -hmm. and And rightfully so. Yeah. As humans, we always fight for, you know, stability Security. It's like Maslow's number two on human hierarchy of needs. Hierarchy of human needs. You ever looked that up? Maslow's. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. freaking awesome. It's I mean, like there's basic. nothing stable about starting a business. Mm-mm. Like, there's nothing stable about it. And, um, but it can get there if you just keep going. And yeah. uh, I think we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting more stable. Yeah, we are. Um, I I would love to chat uh, about. I mean, I'm pretty well aware of the uh, state of the music industry and just the struggle for musicians to actually make money these Mm, days mm -hmm, with, you know, I I feel like we're in this era of having the most music at our fingertips that we can listen to for free Mm -hmm. with incredible, incredible music being produced Mm -hmm. and put out there and written, you know, but, uh, I've got a lot of friends who are in bands that are just struggling to make money, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, and I guess asking that question, I would love to hear just sort of your thoughts on that, but then also with what you're doing, you know, and having a ton of people in Nashville that aren't making money who are crazy talented, Mm -hmm. what is your vision and dream for that? Or, or how to, how to make money? Like, because you described yourselves earlier as creating this platform for people who have all this stuff to then be able to get them paid. Yeah. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, we actually kind of sort of just had a meeting like we came to this from a meeting uh, with my what we call our lead composer. His name's mm-hmm. Adrian. And 
we had a discussion about this. It was like, um, uh, so in the 1930s, I think there was a time, this goes back to the market of the market, right? Uh, in the, in the thirties, there was a, the first pick in the NFL draft chose to turn down playing in the NFL to go, um, I think make rubber or sell rubber because that paid him more money. So at that time, ASCAP and BMI, all the PROs that collected money, this I'm trying to, I'm going to use really basic terms because this is super annoying business bullcrap. But at that time, uh, terrestrial radio was making um, performers, musicians, a ton of money, a ton of money. It was a cash cow. Well, if you fast forward just a short 50 years, well, we very much, uh, appreciate our NFL stars in the current economy and market, and we pay them handsomely for it. Now it's our turn to go sell rubber apparently. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, as much as that sucks, you can't control the economy. You can't control the market. What you can control is you and the way in which you involve yourself in that economy. And so for Travis and I, I didn't grow up playing my guitar in my garage going, Oh man, someday I'm going to know so much stuff about copyright law. It's going to be awesome. It's like, no, I grew up saying I want to be in a band and play music for a living, but it turns out I'm actually really passionate about the business side of this company. And once a week, I still get to come into my studio and make beautiful music with some of the most talented composers in the world. I'm winning. My, my, my priorities have just shifted. Yeah. Um, and there's, so as an artist, like, Stop being pissed off at Spotify for ripping me off at whatever. It's like, man, I'm sorry. I have a strong opinion about this. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to like this. But I have, I personally have spent more of my own personal dollars in the music economy through Spotify than I ever did when I had to buy records. Now, that's me. And I'm pretty sure that's most of this nation. Yeah. Like, I don't think many, like my mom surely didn't spend $120 a year on music before Spotify was a thing. I know that. So they have actually injected more cash into this musical economy than ever before. Has the record sales gone down? Yes. Has that money shifted and been divided a hundred thousand gazillion more times to every other schmo that has an album on Spotify? Yes. But there's ways to there, there's ways where you can get creative with what you do from a business perspective and still make money doing what you're doing. You can make a living being a YouTube star at this point if you're a musician. Right. So just get in the game, find something unique, find something, you know, your, your art is always going to be unique to you. But you're competing now with all the other millions of people that have a camera and a guitar and if you're just noise like the rest of them, you, you don't get to complain that you don't have a record deal. Yeah. You just don't. I'll chime in here and say that there used to be a template for being an artist. You know, uh, the 1980s, 90s, I mean, really all through the 60s, there was a template for making somebody a successful artist. Uh, you're a nobody. You get discovered by somebody, an <laughs> A&R. Uh, you get signed you go through the thing and you don't have to worry about anything. And uh, they, they pitch you songs, you write songs. There's a whole process. And and th- especially in Nashville during the 90s with uh, country artists, they had that down to such a science. Mm-hmm. 
like a, a precision of of things that would happen. Oh, you're signing. There's 40 things on a list that we need to go down and you're going to be successful. But now that template is no longer a thing. It's slowly going away. And over time, it's going to it's going to completely go away. And I that pr- would be the Internet's fault. Yeah, I Inject promise you. the Internet. So so to me, there's no template anymore. So everybody's kind of on their own. So that means we all have to start thinking a little bit less like, oh, I need to just get discovered so somebody will start my career and and somebody some big cat you know some fat cat in a big office is just going to make my career happen we have to stop that mentality yeah. and 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 really get into the dirt of like okay i'm a band how am i going to survive how am i going to feed my family uh, i really believe that the the mass uh, market is dying mm-hmm. and we're turning into the micro market and yeah, niches, the niches. It's all in the niches. Now um, I had the honor of touring with a band called fish and they're like, uh, <laughs> that's book. amazing. I've, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're small, small little band that uh, has gone on one or two tours in their day. Yeah. No, uh, zero radio play. None. Um, not even a record label. They own their, their own record label now. Um, and they they just tour, but they sell out 60,000 seat places everywhere they go um, every year. Like three nights in a row, right? Three <laughs> nights in a row. We'll set it, um, I don't know, the huge amphitheater and sell three nights in a row, sold out. And, I, you know, and my mom's like, who are they? Who Who's fish? Yeah, you who's know, fish? Like, and... They it's built just amazing. A, they built a tribe out of. I mean, then they're kind of an odd band. They're so odd. I mean, and and the and to top it all off, they video stream their shows every night and charge fifteen dollars a head for somebody to stream online. And it, between any given night, there's fifty to sixty thousand people streaming online to watch them play every night. Like, man, if you can do quick math in your head. That's a chunk of change for opening up a live stream. Like, yeah. and I don't think it has anything to do with they found some label, they they did this radio hit. They that's that's not the method. It's like, man, they treated their fans like royalty and they gave them what they wanted and they keep giving them more of what they wanted. It's not about fish. It's about their fans. Yeah. If I mean, and I I, I really believe that that's why Taylor Swift is in the position she, she's in. She's like from day 1 that girl treated her fans and still treats her fans like royalty. She flies them around on private jets to come meet her at some whatever. That kid is now an advocate for Taylor Swift for the rest of his life. It doesn't even matter if he ends up hating her next record. It won't matter. Like you got to just do things. It's about your fans. It's not about you. It's not about your ego. Uh, And this is, that's all. This is, I don't know. Maybe this is subjective. It is subjective. Yeah, it is. Whatever. It's fine. Well, well I mean, podcast. you guys you guys definitely have a seat in that space being in Nashville, you oh, know, yeah. and in that music world. Um, but I, I think what you're both saying, which is hugely relevant, and I think it applies to anyone in any sort of art form. I mean, the, the saturation level of any form of art 
how many photographers you know in Nashville? You know, how many photographers are in LA? Mm -hmm. Um, Let alone musicians, let alone artists, let alone designers. Mm -hmm. With Instagram, you're seeing people who are, you know, starting to just post their sketches. Now, all of a sudden, they're getting hired as an illustrator that are, you know, not a photographer. All of a sudden, they have 200,000 followers and they're getting hired by Nike. You know, it's 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 wild. And so so the, the saturation level is extremely high mm-hmm. and so what it, it just really changes the game and, and it sort of it, it forces you if you are going to rise above the the noise what mm-hmm. you were just saying it's like you really have to do something special mm-hmm. and you really it's it's not going to be handed to you anymore which i think what you guys are saying it used to sort of get handed to you if you were good if you were good and you could get discovered it had a lot more to do with luck you know yeah you know, so, you know, that whole idea of like being a musician and I, and I do really think it applies to every sort of being a freelancer and totally how do you does. set yourself apart? How do you create a brand for yourself? You're not just a band. You're not just a musician. You're creating this band and it's being loyal to your tribe mm-hmm. and it is really feeding that tribe in a way that they will sell themselves for you yeah. and, and yeah. sell you to the mountains, you That's know? Right. So, and, and I think you have to get creative with that and, and people are generally, not doing that mm-hmm. well and I, I, the people that are are killing it totally and even for for ourselves when we started a stock music company um there was a template for that you know mm-hmm. like there had been people to set the standard of what it means to be a stock music company what you need to charge all these things and we decided like well they're already doing that so Let's turn it up on its head, charge $10 a month, which we'll get a lot of flack for that, I'm sure. And yep. we have. And But if you look at the numbers, if yeah. you do simple math, yeah. you can, you know, we're, we're, we're providing something for our artists and we keep our contributor number smaller than most stock sites um, to, to really... So they're getting paid yeah, you could, just it, the same. It's a carving out of the, I mean, honestly, man, the, the real, one of the real reasons it took such a long time in building our business to just even get to release is Travis and I are producers. We're music makers. And the last thing we're going to do is create a company, another company that hurts the music industry further. We like we really genuinely want to stim, and this doesn't matter to. It may maybe this matters, maybe it doesn't. I don't assume this really matters to to filmmakers, but it's just really genuinely, honestly important to us that we don't further hurt this small economy of creatives trying to make a living. And so we're that was something that really held us up for a really long time. We knew we needed to offer ten bucks a month. We knew that. But we were like, how in the world are we going to do this and not screw the people making the music? You know what I mean? So that took a, that took a few years to figure out that algorithm, which is literally what we call it. It's like our payment algorithm. Is that how, can you talk about how you, like, what is that that you figured out? How does sure. that work for people who are going like, how does the musician get paid? Yeah, sure. Um, what's, <laughs> uh, okay. So the algorithm itself is actually pretty complicated. You don't need to um, give me, give me the results of the algorithm. Totally. What's funny is the results of it. It is the most simple math you have ever, like you, we felt dumb when we finally figured out the algorithm of how right. we're going to do all this because we were like, Oh, let's just get a lot of users and then we'll just have the same small number of guys make a lot of music. And that way they can get, get bigger chunk of the pie. <laughs> 
<laughs> instead of like it's like the simplest math. Like don't put a hundred thousand uh, bands up for a hundred thousand users because everybody's paycheck is going to be junk. So it's like, well, okay, let's we're still and we're still in the process of finding out what that ratio is. Like how how many users per composer can we do where everybody still makes a happy living? Because the more options you have on the on as a user in the front, the more pockets you have to fill. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the real challenge is finding the guys that are the right guys to be a part of our composing staff. So we're, we look for a lot. We look for those guys to work a lot. Right now, it's just four tracks a month we ask for. But relatively, that's that's a lot. Usually most bands will cut, you know, five song EP once a year or whatever. So we're looking for composers that are self-sufficient, that can, that are diverse in their musical abilities, that can find time in their life to give us four completed tracks every single month. And it's again, this is the patience, the persistence, the slow game. This is going to take us. We could probably get 10,000 songs in our catalog next week if we wanted to just go buy some masters from some whatever company and the quality would be awful. We could probably do that. But for us, quality matters and quality of life matters for the composers that are that are willing to invest in our company at this point. We're, we're really new and we're really appreciative of the people that have come around and said, yeah, I, w- I want to do this with you guys, you know? Yeah, I love it. Um, so in just to wrap things up, cause we've been talking for a bit, sure. um, what, I guess, do you have any just parting words of, if anything, just the things that you guys have really gotten from <clears throat> building this company? Um, read books. I know. What are some of the, yeah, let's go with that. What are, what are some of the best books? Cause I, I sure. actually, some of the things that you've talked about, it's like, we read a lot yeah, of the same we, books. Yeah, I we, think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are, what are some of your favorite books you read? Uh, oh my gosh. Travis, I, go, go ahead. I, I think, I mean, I've discovered in the last two years the the true value of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was never used to be a reader. I, I made it all the way through high school successfully only reading one book. Yeah. Uh, so I never, never used to appreciate it. And now it's like, man, we wouldn't have this company. We wouldn't have our 10 core values that we have as a, there's so much you can learn. Travis is pulling up a list of our, what we, we have a book club in our little company. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. There are Just so, for you guys. Uh, this yeah. whole staff. There are awesome. so many books. I mean, I read everything by Seth Godin. I can get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dip is amazing. Uh, uh, tribes is amazing. Um, yeah. Tribes is a great one for the conversation we've had. If anybody's, if any of your listeners are like, Oh, this is an interesting conversation. I like what they're talking about. Read tribes. Yeah. At purple cow. I, I read a book by Elizabeth Gil- Gilbert that wrote, uh, eat, pray, love. She, she wrote a book on creativity called big magic. Okay. And it is amazing. It's phenomenal, man. If you haven't read it, Big Magic? Big Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of like uh, nerdy business books too, like the, the E-Myth that you were talking about, mm-hmm. um, uh, Scaling Up. There's one called um, Delivering Happiness, Tony Shea that uh, runs Zappos. That's awesome. Um, the, the one in particular that f- almost is responsible for forming the backbone and structure of our company is a book called the automatic customer. 
Interesting. Um, it is strictly business, like. Oh, it's a nerdy business book about subscription enough. businesses. Yeah, it's tactical, um, man. But it is awesome. Um, uh, it it's been our goal, like mine personally, to read a book a month for, I think, two years now, and so I believe. I like. I seriously wouldn't be here if it weren't for those books, and yeah. uh, it's just learning in general. I mean, honestly, learning, failing, like, I don't know. That's just that sums it up for yeah, me. I'm trying to think. Read books for sure is like one that, if I've learned anything, it's that is the most incredibly valuable thing, and it's at your disposal. Like, come on, it's like ten dollars, and it it can right. change your life. Like that's that's real. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation with the Soundstripe founders and came away with some things and thoughts that you can apply to your business or craft. I know you've heard it from other podcasts, but if you do like this show, please go over to iTunes and leave a review or tell a friend about it, which are the biggest compliments you can give. And it helps create awareness for the show, which is always a good thing. Uh, Thanks tons. We have a lot more good stuff lined up. So until next time, work hard, work smart, and make sure you enjoy the journey along the way.